if our inner life doesn't affect how we treat people, then I have to wonder if we're really walking with God because yeah. the Christian life is not theology alone, right? And so I don't want to be a modern day devil, Diablo, right? right? Because I can have all the religious answers. I can get a PhD in theology and still hate my neighbor and burn them at the stake, separate uh, them from their children, mothers and fathers at the border, uh, turn my eye to the lynchings of African-Americans or, or the police brutality and pretend it doesn't exist because it doesn't touch my everyday life. Right. Welcome to the protagonistas. Bueno, thank you so much for doing this with me. I, like I was saying earlier, I was so inspired by reading <laughs> this morning that I had so many thoughts and I sat down and I was like, I opened a Word document, like, you know, like <laughs> writing all my thoughts. <laughs> and so I'm really excited to chat with you about um, this beautiful work that you have labored in love for all of us to glean and learn from. So I want to start. Oh, well, let me introduce. So we have here Madalena Graves and, and she wrote a beautiful book. Um, yeah, and so we're going to chat about that today. So, Madalena, you talk about a big theme in your book is how you grew up in poverty. Uh, you say in your book, you explain that after a workshop with Brenda Salter McNeil doing the privilege walk that um, I actually had the privilege to do a while ago. And it, it is so helpful and just kind of seeing, um, like you said, you said that within that privileged walk, you realize that even with my education and ability to think fundamentally, I was still on society's and American church's bottom of the pecking order. I was a bottom dweller. So I wonder if you want to share with us, you know, as we kind of introduce your book, a little bit about what you mean by that. Um, and if you want to share with us a little bit about your upbringing um, and where and how you grew up. Okay, thank you so much, Kat. Um, I, well, I was, I probably was 30 years old, around 30 years old, maybe 31, when um, Brenda Salter McNeil came to the university where I and my husband worked to do some training for the faculty and staff. Um, this was for the student life staff mostly, but there was faculty about privilege. Um, so it's about a little over 10 years ago. And uh, she asked a bunch of questions, questions like, we all started, let me back up, we all started, she had like a masking tape and drew, you know, a line, a, a starting line in the middle of a big multi-purpose room. Uh -huh. And there's probably 40, 50 of us there, uh, maybe more than that, maybe like, I can't remember, I'm 75. So I had no idea what she was doing. So I was caught by complete surprise. Um, mm. And she asked a series of questions and after each question it she says if the answer is you know this then take a step forward or to take two steps forward and if no then take a step or two step backwards depending on the question was asked for example one of the questions was did you go to a summer camp mm -hmm. if you did take a one step forward and i and if not take one step backwards and this was at the starting line so but that one with that question, I took a step backwards. Another one was, were you ever, um, I don't think she was assaulted, but said assaulted, but have you ever been something along those lines because you're a woman, you know, uh -huh. take, you know, a step backwards. Um, are you the first one to go to college in your family? 
whatever, you know? And yeah. so, or, or do you have parents that went to college? Take two steps forward. So after, I don't remember how long it was, but um, I kept going backwards from the starting line. Mm-hmm. I never made it. I never even made it across the starting line. Um, I never even took a step forward from the starting line. And so by the end of the questions, all the questions, um, me, one of my best friends, African-American and another lady, I was, I think the second, I don't know, we're about the same. I'm trying to think maybe my African-American friend, I'm pretty sure she might've been a step behind me, but, um, and you know, she's, she's a magistrate, (laughs) but, um, she, we worked together at this time, but now she's a magistrate and, we were last and I was very embarrassed. I don't know why. I, I mean, I lost this game of privilege mm. um, out of, you know, anywhere from 50 to 75 people. And, you know, um, I can think of the person that was at the front, this, you know, this white guy. And, um, you know, he got the, he got the prize, which was candy to show, you know, all the mm. benefits of privilege. And I was just, like, even after I worked so hard in my life, I, you know, I have a college education. At the time, I had a master's degree. I had already been done with seminary. Um, no matter all these accomplishments that I had, I was still at the back, yeah. at the back. And I don't think I realized, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't know how poor I was. Now I'm like, oh, okay, I was really poor. I mean, I knew there was times where I didn't have food to eat in the refrigerator, and Awalita would just make, you know, some you know, food from mm. flour and water, which is a uh, flatbread now that's so popular, you know? Um, <laughs> and, but I remember I loved it so much. And she told me, you know, flour, water, oil, and you know, this is what you do, how to make flatbread. Um, if that's what we had left. And part of it was because, um, you know, dad, I think part of it because my dad had has bipolar. I didn't know it then. And I don't think mm. he knew it really. Yeah. And that, interrupted his jobs but another part of it is because we lived in a poor area of the country where my dad lives i mean i was born in puerto rico lived in puerto rico for only a little bit of my life mostly the mainland you know i have cousins in miami and uh, new york city and texas but um we were very poor and we lived in an isolated geographical area and so i know what it's like not to have food um, I've talked about this before when schools are out, kids don't have food. Yeah. You know, I was one of those kids. And I think about that now with the pandemic, right. um, now that school's ending, what's going to happen in the summer. I didn't realize till I was about that, you know, until that happened, like just how completely poor I, I was. I mean, in college I had some hints, like I remember students throwing away like really good furniture and stuff. Cause they mm-hmm. couldn't fit it in their cars to go home. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that I went to like what, class was I just didn't know right. um and uh so I, that's the kind of poverty I grew up in where you don't have enough food and where um you know sometimes we lived you know in Pennsylvania where it snowed a lot and so if we went out we ran out of heating oil in the winter um we had to use firewood but that means we had to cut it ourselves and our mm-hmm. chimney didn't work all the time so so my house was smoky and I smelled like smoke going on the school bus, which was embarrassing. Right. So I was a free lunch at risk kid. Like everything that, that says that the world's against you, mm. which I didn't know, right. but came to the fore during this, um, I'm sorry, you called it the privilege walk or we called it the race race. Mm. That's when it all hit me. Mm. And I was like, I don't feel like I can do anything to ever catch up. Like, 
I paid my way through school. I was the first to go through school, paid off all our school loans. Um, you know, Sean was, you know, white, but he didn't come from a very rich family, um, right. very intelligent person. And so just I think of all the delays in my life um, because of that. And if I compared myself to myself and to my family background, like I'm like the richest one, you know, way ahead. But compared to the people in that um, uh, mostly white friends, middle class people, I'm way at the back. And it was just a real enlightening time Mm. to see maybe why I see the world the way I do Mm. and maybe why I can identify with Jesus who is poor. Yes. Yes. And, you do such a good job of that in your book of, of really identifying with Jesus in that way. Um, and I, I do want to ask you a couple questions about that. But I am curious about, um, since you did mention how you identify with Jesus in, in your poverty, um, what was your spiritual background like? Like, what did faith look like for you growing up? Yeah, well, my abuelita and a lot of, you know, Spanish communities and abuelo, um, they kind of lived with us for a time and my uncle Lenny and my family in Florida, you know, and, uh, everybody. Uh, but, um, my abuelita lived with us most of the time and she was Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. but we lived, there was no church in the close vicinity. I shouldn't say close vicinity. It might've been like 10, uh, 15 miles away, the Catholic church, but, um, she didn't speak English very well. And we didn't always have gas to go to church. So um, she, I saw her reading her Bible every single day of her life. And I stayed with her. She lived across the street from my parents. But um, I stayed with her like in second grade, third grade with my abuelito. They lived in a trailer across the street from my parents. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I just liked the peacefulness of her house. It was quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then um, so I stayed with her maybe second, third and fourth great and then went back with my parents when they moved to Florida with my uncle Lenny and his wife but um I would always see her reading her bible even though she only had a third grade education she had to leave school in third grade because her mother died in childbirth and I think with one of her siblings and she had like 10 or 11 in her family in Puerto Rico but she was an entrepreneur like had a food truck in the 50s you know had her own little store Mm. and lots of stuff but I saw her struggling even in Spanish to sound out the words out loud. But every single day she read her Bible. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, Abuelita, who I love with my life, with everything I have, I'm like, if Abuelita, if this is important to her, reading the Bible is important to her, then I want to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. So I learned to read the Bible from a devout Catholic that could not get to church mm-hmm. who had a third grade education. Mm-hmm. And so because we live isolated out in the country, um, when I just really, maybe this is my personality or whatever, um, but I didn't like the sound of like the telenovelas or anything on Univision. Just the background of the TV is like um, going all day. I'm mm-hmm. sure my mom and abuela had it for uh, to have like something in the house, right? Just right. some life. But for me, it was like, um, you know, nail scratching on a chalkboard. <laughs> so I would get out, do whatever my parents wanted to do help the wood stack the wood whatever my dad had for me to do the chores Uh when I was done with that done with schoolwork sometimes I'd read the bible from for two to four hours a day from the age to 10 to 14 because I felt like I could identify with the people in scripture and I felt you know if God did stuff for them for Moses helped them cross the Red Sea he could help me cross my Red Seas whatever Mm -hmm. those were metaphorically and I remember 
I don't talk about it so much in this book. I talked about it in my first book, A Beautiful Disaster, Finding Hope in the Midst of Brokenness. And I'm not going to go into great detail in this conversation with this, but because I do talk about it in my book, my first book. But I remember, you know, when I was in Puerto Rico for a time, I went back when I was 10 years old for like a year. And I was almost kidnapped by a man. Um, and he, he exposed himself to me. Mm. And he tried to, he asked me directions to somewhere. Me being the nice person that I am, I could not even fathom. Mm. I got off the school bus with my sister and brother. And I was just, you know, walking down the street. And he exposed himself, tried to grab my hand so that I would touch him, wow. you know, in his private part. Mm. And I think he was trying to get me in the car. But um, anyways, that really just I was going to say ruined me, but really, you know, yeah. took a terrific toll on me. And then when I got back to Pennsylvania after we'd been in Puerto Rico for like a year, year, about a year, um, reading the Bible, reading especially Matthew, uh, where Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, if you want God to forgive you, you need to forgive, forgive so that you'll be forgiven. Mm-hmm. And that was like, I started applying the Bible at like 11 years old. I'm like, you know, if if I want God to forgive me, then I have to forgive this man that tried to kidnap me, exposed himself to me and basically ruined him. Like I was too scared to go into a store where yeah. men were like the cashiers or whatever for the longest time. Right. And so but that came from reading scripture. Um, yeah. And my uncle, one of my dad's brothers, my uncle Craig, got me a Bible, a children's Bible. I think it was a good news Bible. It might have been Catholic. I don't know. But um, I read scripture and did what it said. And so I also went to church where we lived out in the country in Pennsylvania. Church was a mile away. My parents didn't take me a lot. I just walked and I took my brother and sister with me because I I didn't want them to go hell. You know, I wanted them to know God. And so, so I guess to answer your question is, you know, I was baptized Roman Catholic, have Roman Catholic influence, went to a Protestant church, a country church where they loved me and it was like a Methodist and Baptist church that combined because there were too few people at either of them mm-hmm. but it wasn't really strong in their um, I'm sorry missing the word here just left me but mm-hmm. their distinctives you know it wasn't okay. like really strong Baptist or really strong Methodist it was right, a right. little country church and they loved me and my family and my brothers and sisters and um, were real faithful to us they just really showed what is love to love little kids you know yeah. and um so that was my background wow. growing up yeah wow that's I think it's so beautiful how you mentioned that you know your your grandmother was a devout catholic and she couldn't really you know she had a third grade education but just her reading your bible her sorry her re- her reading her bible just influenced you to just do the same and that I mean essentially changed the course of your life that actually sounds a lot like my own story in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of these immigrant or a lot of these abuelitas that are underprivileged, mm-hmm. like they don't, a lot of them don't have access to church, right? And so a lot of like popular Catholicism is birthed in the home and, and that is such mm-hmm. like a, a huge picture of what it means to, to, yeah, to sort of just live out this everyday sort of faith in the home um, because you don't have access to much else. And that reminds me of something in your book, actually, that I wanted to ask you. So you talk about, which I thought was so beautiful, you ask, um, Jesus learned the habit of voluntary self-emptying and renunciation of self-will by observing his mother. In relinquishing his own will uh, for the sake of the Father's will throughout his earthly life, Jesus exhibited the same posture of his mother. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And I thought about, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm working on Abuelita Theology right now. 
Um, And so that was such a beautiful thing because there's I'm always looking for ways in the Bible that we can see like these mothers and these grandmothers discipling people in the faith. And I loved how you kind of turned it on to well, you sort of turn it to us when you say when we cooperate with the spirit and emptying ourselves of anything that crowds out the life or grace of God, we become like Jesus's mother, Mary. We become God bears pregnant with the divine. And I thought that was so beautiful how you connected, you know, Jesus being essentially like his his self-emptying was similar to his mother. And then we become pregnant with, you know, the divine when we do the same. And so if you want to, I don't know, elaborate on that um, as a sort of sort of mama or abuelita, maybe Christology. I was thinking, I'm like, man, this is a like an abuelita Christology. Um, and if you want to elaborate a little bit on that as you were writing that, like what, what are some of the things you were thinking of? Yeah, well, I'm I'm really fascinated. You know, I'm going to read what you write, but kind of what you said about the popular Catholicism being birthed, or even Protestantism, I'm sure, in the home, right, with your family members, because um, we have to think, and you might be able to shed a little bit more light on this, because maybe you're doing more New Testament studies than I did. I'm not sure, but so you know, at least the Eastern Orthodox think that you know Joseph was an old man when. Jesus was born and uh, when he was betrothed to Mary. And so we don't see after Jesus appears in the temple, we don't see Joseph mentioned after he gets lost. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say he gets lost after they lose him. Right, right. You know, I think they were, he was probably just talking and learning um, from the teachers of the law, from the Pharisees and his family left and he wasn't aware of it. And, right. you know, three days later, they're like, where's Jesus? So we don't see joseph appearing there and in in in, you know on the cross i'm not going to get into debates here but i i I don't think the protestants always have stuff right you know i think Mm -hmm. why did he leave mary to john and not if one of his own brothers if he had them if they weren't his cousins but um so joseph doesn't seem to be around because if he were around you know mary would be with joseph um so um i think that Mary played, just thinking about those things and, and, and just thinking about them, I think Mary played a crucial role in his spiritual formation. Right. Right? Because I don't know when Joseph would have died, but even at the wedding at Cana, the disciples were invited. Mm-hmm. She was there. He was there. And he's like, you know, she said, do what he says. You right, know, right, she right. already knows something. I mean, from when the angel Gabriel proclaimed the things and she held them close in her heart, as it says in the Gospel of Luke, I think. But I think that she was one of the primary forces of Jesus's spiritual formation as a human being. Right. And I think, I mean, it just makes sense because I think Jesus spent most of his time with her if Joseph wasn't around or after Joseph passed away. And I also think Jesus, you know, had to provide for her as, mm-hmm. as her son. Right. And so she came along with him in his ministry and, um, and, um, she was there through all of these things. And so I think that she was the primary influence on his spiritual formation. And we say, you know, when God chose her, um, because of her faithfulness and yes, before the beginning of the world, I know some people might get into argument about like predestination, but (laughs) I think she had something to do with it. I don't think she was just a blank slate. I think she cooperated with God. He saw that she was a willing vessel and that 
she allowed herself, she practiced kenosis or emptying because she allowed herself to be filled, literally physically filled with the divine so that she had Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And even though it was going to cost her and it could cost her public humiliation, you know, stoning, whatever, because she was pregnant out of wedlock. And she was willing to count the cost to obey God, uh, not knowing that she was going to follow her own son, Jesus, but Mm -hmm. um, she was willing to count the cost. And I think Jesus observed these things the same way I observed Abuelita, the same way that children see the good and the bad in their families and among their friends. Children pick up on things. And I think Jesus picked up on her life. That's so good. Yeah. And I think you're so right. I think that we, um, I don't think people often talk enough about, you know, the spiritual formation of Jesus, right? We just, people just talk about, well, he was God. So therefore he was, you know, formed from the very beginning. And I mean, of course there's truth in that, but I think it's beautiful that, um, that you're right. I mean, and all these little, um, pieces of stories we get, you know, her interactions with him and her, you know, that just whatever it is, you know, her talking to him or her. And so I think that that's really, um, I think that's, that's just so much there. There's so much unpacking to do. So anyway, thank you for, <laughs> you know, kind of digging into that, um, a little bit in your book and then now, cause then it's definitely something that I want to think more about as I work on my own, abuelita, you know, theology. Um, mm-hmm. okay. So you talked about the self-emptying and I mean, of course that is like the, the, you know, the foundation of your book. So in the beginning, you say, um, God's riptide is intent on moving me further and further away from the shores of self-centeredness. God is intent on making me more real, a less distorted image of him. As I become more like him, I become more human. In turn, I will love him and others with a deeper love. I will become dependent on God to energize me with his life. If I want to be full, open to receiving abundant grace, more human, selfless, first I must be emptied. And then you quote, um, as is very popular, he must increase as I must decrease. So I was actually so curious when I read this. Um, I love how you use John's words of decreasing to actually say that more of Jesus means more human us, right? And so not too long ago, I tweeted that I understand the sentiment behind John the Baptist inspired saying, right, like more of Jesus, less of me. But for some reason, like that started rubbing me the wrong way um, because of this idea that me is a sort of negative thing, right? Like me is like, well, we need to just completely rid ourselves of ourselves. But I love how you speak to that, right? Because there are parts of ourselves that we need to rid ourselves from, but it's a sort of more of Jesus is a more you know, whole, healthier me. And that was a thing that I had tweeted. And so I love how you still use John the Baptist, right? Like his, like what he says, like I must decrease, but it's not a a completely like, you know, I am a horrible, disgusting thing and I just need to stop being me, right? You know, so um, if you want to speak to or how you reconcile the two of like us decreasing, decreasing in our self-centeredness, but also becoming more of ourselves, more human. Yeah, I, you know, there might be some debate um, about Irenaeus and exactly what he meant, but a popular saying of St. Irenaeus is the glory of God is of a human being fully alive, Mm -hmm. a human being fully alive. Um, You know, Jesus said, I've come to give you life, life to the full. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so when I say, and, and I, I completely agree with you, by the way, when I say, you know, he must increase, I must de- decrease, I, the I in us that's anything in us that crowds out the life of God in our life, right? Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean our basic personality. It doesn't mean our love and our, our gifts and the things that we like that make us who we are. That's not what God wants to get rid of. Right. He made us. He made us. When the I that needs to decrease is the I that wants to call the shots in our life. The I that says my will, not God's will mm-hmm. um, be done. Mm-hmm. But God uses us. You know, he uses Mary. He uses you. He uses John the Baptist with our colorful personalities and gifts. Um, you know, I'm looking out the window at my house. It's a 80 degrees day. I can't believe it, but I'm just, you know, looking at people walking by and, uh, you know, I think of my friends that are musicians and, and vocalists and just those are gifts that I do not have some of it. Cause I wanted to learn how to play instruments when I was young and I just didn't have money to do it. Mm. But even, you know, I haven't arrived there. I don't know if I would ever have been like a, you know, a concert pianist or a vocalist. But some of my friends are, right? Mm-hmm. I write, they do this. God, I think God gets glory and joy out of watching us use our gifts. Um, for those of us that have children or around children, or even someone that's learning to do something for the first time, I think God takes joy in that the way we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and delight. I think God delights. And so God is not like... Um, uh, some of the theology that's popular today is not, I, I mean, I'm not a warm theologian at all, and I don't think it's <laughs> biblical, um, but it's not like God wants to take us and stamp us under his foot and, you know, like someone would a cigarette right, and right, just right. mash it into the ground, right? He wants us to be fully alive. And, um, and so when I say decrease the us, you know, stuff that must decrease, it's that stuff that cr- crowds out the life of God in us. But anything that magnifies God, and it's going to be magnified through us, through the vessel we are, with all its uniqueness, God takes delight in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, again, when we we want to be, if we want to go Satan's way, I think of the devil, and Jesus' temptation you know, uh, to be popular, to be, uh, uh, to have all the power in the world, when we let that feed us instead of God's life, and, and we want to be fed on those things, that's what needs to decrease. Because if we're fed on, you know, power, glory, the glory of the flesh right, right, right. and all that kind of stuff, that's the part that needs to decrease yeah. um, in us. Because otherwise, that's going to crowd out God's life in us. So when he must decrease, I mean, I think John the Baptist meant, I think Jesus meant his life in us must keep growing. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think that's good. Because I do feel like that sort of um, idea, yeah, like it, it turns into this sort of worm theology, like you mentioned, you know, like this, we are just completely depraved, atrocious people. And, you know, like, and so, yeah, I, I think that it, it is beautiful to look at that same thing, um, not necessarily in a new light, but in a way of we need to de- decrease in us what is... Um, you know, not speaking into uh, the, or what is dehumanizing in us or dehumanizing in others and what feeds right. into that, you know? Um, there so it I, is. Yeah. So I think that's, that's beautiful. Okay. So I want to turn and talk a little bit about prayer um, because that is another thing that you um, focus a lot on your book. 
and you talk a lot about, you know, prayer on your feet sort of sort of prayer. And so I want to ask you two questions about that. The first one is that you start, um, I don't know what chapter this is, but you start a chapter with this line that I thought was so good. And I, I like highlighted it and then like I sat in it for a little bit. Um, but it says, back in the day when there was prayer in school, there was also slavery, lynching, and the genocide of the indigenous too. Um, and I thought that that was such a poetic and deep and just, oh yeah, heartbreaking line. But then you continue, God would rather have our life of prayer manifest itself in love for our neighbors, which demonstrates our love for him over perfunctory prayer in school any day. And then you go on to reflect on the Ku Klux Klansmen, um, how they were everyday people, butchers, bakers, pastors. Um, they would lynch on Saturday night and then sing Amazing Grace on Sunday mornings at church. And then you ask how followers of Christ can do this, right? I mean, these are the question that we all sort of ask ourselves all the time. Like, I don't understand um, how people, Christians, can support draconian immigration policies, immigrant children living through life-altering trauma. And then you say Christianity lived out in mental abstraction in our heads alone isn't Christianity. So I would love to know if you can reflect on this a little more, what it means or what it says about the state of Christianity in our country when some of the most heinous crimes have been committed by Christians. And I know that we say so much about Christianity as a colonial enterprise, and that's something that, you know, I talk a lot about. And I know it's a systemic problem, right? Like the foundation in and of itself in many ways is corrupt. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts regarding this and intimacy with Christ. You ask, how then do we become the kind of people who are not akin to the Ku Klux Klansmen, pastors and lay people of our time, but those who are living prayers and living answers to prayer for others? I kind of mentioned this a little earlier when we got on the call, but I think it's easy to say, well, it's just a systemic issue, right? The whole system needs to be torn down. And of course, there's truth to that. But it's also easy to say, which is common among, you know, many conservative peoples or many white evangelicals, um, well, it's just a sin issue, right? It's just a repentance issue. But I think that you touch on something important, and that is that it's both, right? Like that it's both a systemic issue and it's also a personal repentance sin issue. So can you tell me your thoughts on that, on just, you know, this idea of bothness and how we can not become like those you know the quote-unquote those people um that we just don't understand thank you for that um and you know i'm glad we both feel strongly about this because i think it's the gospel i i want to um just quote i think it was richard hayes i heard on a actually just yesterday something uh, tweeted out by seth haynes mm -hmm. that you know the people want to pigeonhole us and this is my rephrase of what he said pigeonhole us you know into a liberal or a conservative but the bible transcends those categories right right and people just want to nail people down but the bible transcends those categories um it, it just just the basics of christianity love god love your love your neighbor and your enemy mm -hmm. <laughs> you know love god your neighbor and your enemy so we can't get out of loving people whether we like them or not um and how that love works itself out now that's the work we've got to do and figure out mm -hmm. what it means to do those things but so i mean when there was prayer in school and people there are people that rally for prayer in school but like i said there was lynching mm -hmm. uh just horrible inhumanities and human rights abuses and murder death and torture right, <laughs> to right. native americans uh, chinese japanese 
everybody, <laughs> all sorts of people, uh, uh, you know, Latino, Latina people. Right. And so prayer in school, just praying before the bell rang or whatever. Why wasn't that a major transformation in our culture? Right. Is my question. Mm. Because the prayer did not transform the way we think about the world. You know, Romans 12, 1 and 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind because African-American voices and other voices, people that were crying out saying this is wrong, were hushed, were demeaned, were terrorized, were not considered the Imago Dei or even to be persons way back when. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have a kind of um, I think self-righteousness is like the first thing Um, we think. We're better than other people. We dismiss other people who aren't like us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in order to be the answers to our prayers, um, (laughs) because prayer in school did not transform our culture. I mean, people said our people say now certain aspects that our culture has gone to hell. Mm -hmm. Our our culture has gone or is going to hell. I'm like, you're saying that now? (laughs) (laughs) I want to say like when all this was started happening at the beginning right. and continuing to happen, it's been going to help for a long time. Right, uh, right. So if you think about that and so, uh, I mean, it's getting worse in other facets, but it, we've been living hells for a while. And, yeah. and, and, um, so what I'm trying to say is that for our minds to be transformed, for us to become the answers to prayer, not the kind of people that, perpetrate such human rights abuses i mean we need to take a look and listen to um obviously scripture think about how jesus acted his he was crucified for many reasons for personal sin yes Uh, he he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins but his personal actions affected politics right um because it it uh made the 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 ruling class, the, the Pharisees and the high priests are like, okay, you know, it's better that when one man died than our whole nation go down in flames mm-hmm. uh, because of this man. We don't want a riot, you know, Roman to, Rome to come crush us because of the riots. But Jesus um, affected, his teaching affected politics. I mean, it ended up right. because, you know, Judas and other zealots wanted to go take it, take things by force. So some of us are zealots. We want to burn everything down, right? Yeah. And others of us are more Essenes, more like, you know, I'd say maybe me, I'm more like um, a monastic or something, and yeah. but I can't withdraw. Right. So right. I guess what I'm saying is, and I think we might have talked about this a little bit earlier, is that when our personal piety, you use the word piety, our personal formation is not ours alone. And, and I'll go back to, to Jeremiah, and I think this nails it, is that, that our welfare is tied. Pray, you know, for the welfare of the city, because when you pray for its welfare, you'll find your own. Mm-hmm. And um, the way Jesus treated women, um, I mean, he made lots of people mad at the time because of how he treated women. And he was accused of, you know, being a drunkard and this, that and the other because of how he treated people, how he treated Samaritans. And how he said Samaritans were the ones that went away justified, not the Pharisee. Right. And so in many cases, because of how they treated other people. And so instead of, I think, you know, I mean, prayer in school might be, be nice. I don't think it's possible anymore because we live in a, a different re- a society with many religions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we'd have to let all sorts of people pray in school, the Muslim, the Buddhist, whatever, and that might be fine. 
um, pray however you want. But if our inner life doesn't affect how we treat people, then I have to wonder if we're really walking with God because yeah. the Christian life is not theology alone, right? Because yeah. the devil has good theology pretty much. I mean, he doesn't have it all. Right. But he knows that Jesus is the Christ. He knows all these things, but that doesn't affect how he behaves. And so I don't want to be a modern-day devil, Diablo, right? Right. Because I can have all the religious answers. I can get a Ph.D. in theology and still hate my neighbor and burn them at the stake, yeah. uh, separate them from their children, mothers and fathers at the border, uh, turn my eye to the lynchings of African-Americans or, or the police brutality and pretend it doesn't exist because it doesn't touch my everyday life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So... This kind of leads to another question I want to ask, but I do because you mentioned the Samaritan person and you mentioned women, and there was um a beautiful sentence that you wrote that I actually I wrote it down because I actually want to quote it in my own book, but um I thought I'd just ask you anyways. Um, so you talk about the Samaritan woman and you talk about how she was someone on the lowest rung of her society and she refreshed Jesus by giving him a drink of water, and then you say. Jesus didn't discriminate in his dependence. And I thought that was such a good, you know, sort of take on that. Like Jesus depended on her in that moment. And so if, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. Like, what does that mean to you that Jesus, you know, depended on someone like a, a Samaritan woman? Yeah, I mean, we can expand that out. Like Jesus depended on a Samaritan woman. You know, first she was a woman. Second, she yeah. was a Samaritan and, you know, he talked to her during the daytime, um, you know, by himself, which is very controversial, right? He did right. not follow the Billy Graham rule. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, he did all sorts of things that would make the religious people and his own disciples angry, right? Because it says in there they didn't ask him about it. They didn't yeah. say anything about it. But I, I'm really fascinated by how Jesus depended on people. His Peter, James, and John, right, when he was... Uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane, he's like, would you just stay with me? You know, he was in need. He he, he wanted, he was lonely. He was going to go to his death. Um, he depended on women, the other women in scripture from, uh, you know, Susanna from Harris household. They probably made him food, gave them money to fund the ministry. Yeah. Um, and they all traveled along with him. Um, he depended on um, Joseph in his death. He depended on Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, right? Mm -hmm. And Siren of Cyrene who might have been, we're not sure, you know, what, uh, maybe ethnicity, you know, he might have been, you know, a man of color, I think. So right. he depended on, oh, everyone was that there, I should say. But yeah. you know what I'm saying. Yeah, there yeah, were yeah. all sorts of people that Jesus depended on in his humanity and even women. And uh, I just shouldn't say in even women. Right, I think right. some other people would say in even women. Because yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, I'm not downgrading us whatsoever. But I am fascinated that Jesus chose to depend on human beings on his own mother, right. For his birth and to mm -hmm. feed him. So he didn't die of malnutrition right. as a baby. Um, and the, the woman at the well, he depended on someone to refresh him. He's like, I need a drink. He needed a drink. And yes, he had that conversation with her, but she met a real need of his and he didn't mind asking a woman. Yeah, um, good. And, and, and indeed, you know, she's known as, you know, as uh, an evangelist and, yeah. um, so I, Jesus depended on people and I think, and Jesus was very communal. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that runs contrary to our American individualism. I didn't yeah. say that in the book, but just throwing that in there for fun. <laughs> um, he, he is not a, Jesus is not a rugged individualist. Uh, somehow, and that shows the humility of God. He humbles himself to depend on human beings. And I think he depends on us in some way. Mm-hmm. It, I, I, I can't explain that. You know, maybe that's a dissertation. But I think God depends on us. And why he does, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's just how he chooses to work. Right. Well, no, I mean, I think that, that that's good because, you know, when you talk about like prayers and prayers with legs, I think that in itself is a way God, you know, God is depending on us, right? To be those, because mm-hmm. you mentioned, and actually I'll, I'll kind of quote this here, and, and this is talking about, I don't mean to bring up like a super, you know, heavy topic on abortion, but it's just this idea of, you know, what might it look like? Okay, well, you in your book, you say that you ta- that there are signs by your neighborhood or where you live that say pray to end abortion, right? And then you ask, what might it look like on a wide scale if those prayers had legs? I think that's a phenomenal question, right? And, and even considering this idea of Jesus depending or God depending on us. So in that sort of idea, right, in that sort of context of, you know, people saying, I, you know, let's pray to end abortion. Well, if God does depend on us in, in these sort of answers to prayers in that way. So how would you say, you know, that might be an example of like God depending on us in, in you know, using our if, our, if our prayers had legs? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about abortion, right? People say, well, I, I, I vote pro-life and, you know, whatever. My question is, okay, that's good. That's a start. Now, what's, um, and I'm not judging, you know, Democrat or Republican. I'm not judging here. Right, right, right. But. Let's say where the people, friends that are Republicans, they might fail where the Democrats do. And that's only in our society because other people don't use those two binaries. Right. right, right. But uh, where the Democrats are like, OK, you know, I think you were supposed to take care of the child and the mother afterwards. So, yes, I vote. But what God wants us to do, and we see this with people, you know, that adopt children and um, out of foster care. That's like what I'm talking about. You may not be able to adopt a child out of foster care. I'm not saying that's a mandate. But what would it look like if you are very convicted that abortion needs to end? What would you do? Would you take a mother that's considering abortion into your household? Or maybe not even a mother that's considering abortion. A a single mother that's struggling, that has nowhere to live. Uh, Would you bring her to your household, feed her, and help her get on her feet? Not that we're saviors. I'm saying because that's what God's calling us to do. Um, You know, would you help eliminate the need for abortion? So helping pass laws that, you know, allow mothers and kids to have enough food to eat, especially right. single moms. Yeah, passing laws, but also, you know, are you like on the school board, the school district, making sure that the kids right. that are most at risk have the best education? Because mm-hmm. simply voting uh, to stop abortions is not going to help that once the kid is born. Right. Because and these are well known, you know. I'm not saying anything new, but I'm right, just right, saying right. is like we can condemn them to a life of death, mm-hmm. you know. And and I said, you know, to be pro-life is like you don't separate children from families. If right, you're right, like right. pro-life, pro-family, you don't. You better not be turning your eyes away from what's happening at the border because I don't want to hear it. Right. You know, your your prayers have to have legs. So in my own life, I mean, obviously we cannot do everything, but taking the notion of God cooperating with us. There are certain things that I know that God has. Again, we talked about this earlier. What makes me unique about Christ increasing in me? You know, I 
have, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to work on immigration and stuff at the border and poverty and race. Uh, and I'm not saying that other people don't do that, but I'll just use one of my friends, for example, Karen Swell Pryor. She does a lot too with abortion. Mm. Um, but we can't do everything, right? So right, right. I think pro-life is a big spectrum. Yeah. And we all have to do our part to, to cultivate a culture of life. But um, we can't be condemning others that are not doing exactly what we're doing because none of us can do 100 things at once. Yeah. But it has to be more than words and more than a vote. Yeah. And that way we are the answers to prayer because there could be someone praying right now, someone you know, at the border right now, I need something to eat. My kid needs clothes, you know, whatever. And we are those answers to prayer. I mean, unless God rains clothes and money and manna from heaven, it's going to have to be us. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Um, thank you for sharing that. Okay. So I have one last question. Um, sure. You talk about how hard it is to love a certain type of Christian, right? Like kind of, you know, it, for all of us, it's hard to love a certain type of person, you name it, whatever, you know, and it's not that we aren't to call out oppressive ways of being, right, within the powerful. Um, you say, I cannot opt out of loving those who are enemies. And I know that you mentioned this a little earlier, and I want to expand a little bit on. But you say, I cannot opt out of loving those who are enemies to me and others. I am to love my enemies. But I'm reminded that I, too, am on the hook for the same type of behavior, even if it is hidden in my heart. Uh, and then later you say, lack of repentance leads to a fantasy life, a fantasy existence. But God calls me to reality. God calls me home. I thought that was so beautiful. Can you just explain to us what that home is? Yeah, being at home in God. You know, he says, you know, I want to come and make my home with you. Um, and, and, and who ha God has called us to be. So, for example, there, I think the hardest people for me in particular to love are Christians that claim to be righteous and holy, but are doing some of the, you know, they're like modern day versions of like people lynching and right, African-Americans, right. whatever, you know, they just dismiss it, call it liberal, whatever. Right. And, and then claim to be so holy, but don't seem to be And note. This is from my perspective. It might be what they tweet on social media or whatever. Right. But could care less about, again, children dying at the border, separated from their families, or, um, you know, what happens to minorities, or, or even the elderly that are suffering from yeah. COVID-19. Right, right. <laughs> are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, and so I get so, I can get so angry, I should say. I can um, at these things. And so I have to back up and say, okay. I'd say to the Lord, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm really mad. I'm just telling you, Lord, I'm upset here. Um, so, you know, one of the first things I do, I don't say anything on, on social media because I'm not going to tweet out my murderous rage or whatever. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then I have to back up. I'm like, hmm, you know, I might not have that sin because it's definitely a sin. And, I mean, we can go to town on it and you will see from Scripture, right? Right. But uh, just look at Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, and other scripture, the whole Bible. But then there's things, you know, that I have in my heart, like this anger towards or bitterness or start to judge. And I have to roll back and be like, okay, that very thing that I have, that if you're starting to judge them, and what I mean, you know, condemn them, I should say, because uh, what they're doing is wrong. But 
you know, the Lord loved them. They claim to be my brothers and sisters, but even if they didn't, I have to treat each person with human dignity. But all those things that come up in my heart, uh, like St. Macario said, there are dragons there, there are angels in our hearts, there's all sorts of things in our hearts, Mm. (laughs) angels and demons. So I see what they do, but there's a lot of stuff in me that is ungodly and anti-Christ. And so, like Jesus says, you know, I have to work on the logs in my own eyes. It doesn't mean I don't call it out when need be. It doesn't mean I have to do it 24-7, but I have to be careful when to speak and when to listen. But then God wants to do his work in me. Um, And so when the more I allow God to take those logs out of my eyes, um, the more, again, I become whole and like him, the more I'm coming home to God. The more I become like Christ, the more I'm coming home and being the person he meant for me to be. Yes. Amen. That's so beautiful. I love that. Um, well, this is so good. I am so thankful for your work and, and this book. I, like I said, I, I literally, I started, I, I mean, I got like halfway through and then I looked at my husband and I was like, um, you have to read this, this is exactly what we were talking about, you know, and it's that balancing faith, um, that's searching into our hearts. Um, and also, you know, searching into our hearts to dig up whatever junk and then turning around and, and trying to make our world, you know, a better place. And so, I think that, um, yeah, I think that you do a, a wonderful job of, of walking us through that and, and helping us see that clearer. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for this conversation. And so if you want to share um, where people can, you know, follow you, buy your book, um, yeah, any of that. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, again, it's an honor to be with you. And to be in the faith together and the kingdom together. Yeah. If you want to, you can go to my website, MarlenaGraves.com, MarlenaGraves.com. And there you can pre-order my book. It'll take you to different places. You can go to InterVarsity Press mm-hmm. or you can find me on Twitter at Marlena Graves. But my website will direct you to everywhere where you can find me, MarlenaGraves.com. Perfect. Thank you so much again. Um, and I will be seeing you around the, the interwebs. <laughs> That's right. Andale, hermana. Gracias. Thank you. Muchas gracias. All right. Bye.